You're listening to Soul Radio. Welcome to Channel 33, a new podcast series presented by Soul. I'm your host, Yusra Al-Baqir. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with creators who are shaping the cultural landscape and raising the bar in their respective fields. Delving into their personal journeys, we'll explore the essence of creative work and the ingredients necessary for immortal impact. Today, my guest is extraordinary rapper Bass. We got on a call to chat about collaboration, trust and confidence. For over a decade, the prolific rapper has been making waves in hip-hop and beyond. Bass was signed to J. Cole's celebrated Dreamville Records in 2014, almost four years after making his very first track. Bass is your favorite rapper's favorite collaborator and a real cultural leader in the Sudanese diaspora. Alongside his creative relationship with J. Cole, he's worked and toured with headline names including DJ Khaled, AB Soul, and Jay-Z. He's released three critically acclaimed albums, each celebrated for their eclectic beats and the original flow he brings to his artful and often humorous storytelling. Born to Sydney's parents, Bass, whose real name is Abbas Hamad, grew up in Paris until the age of eight, and the family relocated to Queens in New York City. His father worked for the UN, and as a result, Bass traveled a lot as a kid so was exposed to rhythms and genres from around the world. It's this expansive global sensibility that underpins much of his artistry, which also includes DJing. As we'll hear in the program, Bass's family have been critical in his musical journey. One of his brothers, DJ Moma, introduced him to a diverse array of sounds as they grew up and encouraged his early forays into producing and performing, whilst his other brother, Ibrahim Hamad, known as Ibe, is J. Cole's manager and co-founder of Dreamville Records. His creative journey is fascinating to me. He hadn't planned on a rap career at all. In fact, he didn't even start rapping until his early 20s. But as we'll hear in this episode, music came along at just the right time in his life. I first met him in 2016 after decades of our families being good friends. For me, Bass's creative journey is a lesson in self-belief and surrender. So I want to take it all the way back to your house, your home growing up. What was playing when you were growing up and, and what do you think, looking back, inspired you to be the artist that you are? Probably, you know, it's, it's crazy because I have four older siblings. So it was a lot of the stuff they were playing. And then I'll see my brother Mo, DJ Moma. He's a pretty prominent DJ. And growing up, our relationship was largely based on music. In a sense, like he would get like a new CD or a new record. He had this crazy collection, you know, before everything went digital. And he would call me in his room and be like, you got to hear this new CD I got. You got to hear this, you know, this new artist. You got to hear this new band. And it would be anything from like Daft Punk to Nas to Craig David to Artful Dodger and like UK Garage to like just a whole like eclectic set of music to African artists, West African artists. Um, mm. Because Isra works for the UN, so she was well-traveled, yeah. well-seasoned. Right. So, and then Isra would have, like, all these, like, acoustic-based, like, like West African artists, North African artists, mm. East African artists. Um, 
South African artist. She was like really in tune with like the music coming out of the continent. Um, you know, and then I had like Eve and, and Ahmed who were just more traditional hip hop heads in the New York sense growing up in Queens. Um, but what about your you parents? Know. Because your uncle is a famous Sudanese musician. Yeah. And your parents love music. So and how did the Sudanese music factor in? It's like a Sudanese household. It's like five year elders jamming and singing the songs, you know? They might not be playing them, but they're just singing them nonstop, yeah. like in unison. My mother, her brothers, is Bashir Abbas was like a, a old maestro, which, you know, for those who don't know, it's like a, a string a instrument. It's a, a lute. lute. Yeah. Is that what is that what it's called? It's, yeah, it's a loop. It's a direct translation. I yeah, you got it. Cool. But I mean, I think what people don't know is that in Sudan, people don't come around chill and and drink, right? They come around play music and drink tea. Yeah, that's the awesome part. It's like it's it's not a DJ. It's like a really skilled musician who just shows up and plays for the homies, and they just all kind of sing along. It's cool. But yeah, and then but Benavid, which is like the band that he worked with. Mm-hmm. That was always playing in the house, and the then like, I, Supremes. Yeah, that's that's exactly what they yeah. equate to. And then like a whole lot of obviously artists I didn't know at you know at the time. There's one guy who's really famous. I think he was might have been Egyptian or something. I'm not sure. I feel like it's Wedidi, right? Wedidi? Yeah. So he's Nubian. So he's Sudanese Nubian. Okay, dope. Yeah. She was just you know I didn't know those artists. I didn't like tap in. I just knew. The music, because when anybody would come over, that was, you know, a friend of my parents, they would sit there and they would sing these songs, Mm. like in the living room. And Um, at what point do you think that you started to rap, sing? Like, when did you become actively involved in the music that was playing in the house? It was late. Like, I I try to tell this to people. I feel like, you know, that's why I always tell people I think anybody can make music. I think it's in everybody because anything you spend time studying, you know, you can kind of replicate and that's where it starts when you start making music you really start replicating the favorite parts of what your favorite artists do and then at some point you develop like your own style and you develop your own ways of you know which is still largely influenced by what you grew up listening to and obviously growing up in a Sudanese household is different we're not necessarily told to pursue music or supported in those endeavors that's probably something that as my parents became more westernized um they grew more comfortable with. But initially I didn't grow up in a household where that was something that even seemed like a possibility or Mm. something you should pursue. So at what point were you kind of like, I'm actually good at this. Like this could be my thing. Yeah, it was my homies really. I guess they gave me a lot of confidence early on because we were doing it as a joke, just loading up the MacBook, putting on GarageBand, hitting record. (laughs) And just having like 12 minute freestyles where it's like eight different dudes getting on and saying whatever they wanted to say. And then, you know, waking up the next day, listening to it and just for jokes, just laughing about it. But then my homies were like, this is kind of a joke, but you're like, you're pretty good. Like, you should take this a little seriously. It was crazy because it was actually summer of 2010 and I just caught a bug. I did the first joint in like May. It was actually my birthday, May 27th. We used to have this crib in the West Village in New York where a lot of my homies that played basketball at NYU, they all lived there. So it ended up kind of being our hangout spot in a sense. We just all would end up there at the end of the night, no matter where we were in the city, and just hang out and kind of nightcap everything. 
Dude, old shot convinced me to rap. I'm like, man, like it's it's bogus. Like <laughs> everybody raps. Like, we, yeah, it feels. Like, did it feel cliche? Where you like everyone wants super. to be. Yeah, I want, everybody wants to be a rapper. I don't want to be no rapper. I didn't grow up wanting to be no rapper. I still tell people that because you know a lot of my homies when they were 14, 15, as early as 11, like been writing raps and knew they mm-hmm. wanted to rap. I didn't write my first rap till I was 23. I went to school on a pharmacy scholarship before I dropped out. You know, it didn't take me long to realize I didn't want to be a pharmacist. <laughs> I'm sorry. Life for me. I'm just imagining you as a pharmacist. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you know, that's like the very Sudani thing to do. So um, how did your parents react when you dropped out of pharmacy and, and wanted to you know, do this full time? I think luckily enough, when I look at all my older siblings, it's like the, the strict and restrictive measures kind of loosen up with every one of us. So when I got there, a lot of the barriers had been kicked down, you know, especially Momo, who actually managed to do everything, like mm-hmm. both the educational, like Sudani route, becoming an mm-hmm. engineer, but then also popping off his DJing career. Um, and then Eve, who met J. Cole in college and started managing him. And he was really the first one to straight up drop out and be like, I'm doing this music thing. You know, so then by the time I came along, they just like, man, just go run around with your brothers, you know? They weren't tripping as much. Um, so the barriers were definitely knocked down for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. And how did seeing Eve and Cole influence you, you think? Tremendously, for sure. I mean, they were the first to to bring me around and make it, you know, seem tangible. Mm-hmm. The, this whole idea of, you know, chasing a dream and doing something that is so far-fetched from how we grew up in, in a Sudanese household, you know, just to see them, you know, go out and try to hand Jay-Z a mixtape to just get denied. And then two years later, you know, end up signing with bro. And now we're in mm-hmm. studio sessions with Hove and, you know, everybody in the game to taking me on tour, taking me to Europe on his first album tour. And just, you know, seeing those things, you, you start to want them. You start to see they're achievable. You start to see how the whole thing is structured, you know, how mm-hmm. how you can find your place in it, how you can make a living in it, how you can put your friends on to mm-hmm. handle certain roles that come with it. Um, it was like having a blueprint, essentially. Mm-hmm. And when was the turning point for you? Because you, so you're at, so you're at university and you're studying pharmacy. And then there must have been this moment where you were like, no, this is a waste of my time. This is what well, I should be doing. I wish it was that sudden. I dropped out after my freshman year mm-hmm. and I came back home. And it just so happened at the same time that my father was retiring from UNESCO. Mm-hmm. So at the time, him and my mother um, figured we're going to move back to Sudan. You guys like keep the house in Queens pretty much. So... <laughs> I come home as a as a college dropout and there in free Sudan house. and it's, yeah, free house. Like I'm going crazy. Like I'm literally like just partying all the time. Um how old are you? 18, 19. Oh man. You could have yeah, actually you could have gone to jail or something. I almost did. Really? Almost what? Did. what happened? I lived a few lives in New York. I'll say that much. Most people that grew up in the city or any big city, you know. You develop like a hustler's mentality. It's it's so much, so many ways to make money. I'll say mm. that much. Mm. Not all of them are necessarily <laughs> legal 
And <laughs> I was just, I had, I had very little direction, you know, but I always knew a ton of people in the town. So it was very easy for me to just connect dots and live a very easy lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it was, but you know, it's fast money and it, it catches up to you like everything does. So I had mm-hmm. like, I had a huge wake up call in regards mm-hmm. to that. Um, a friend of mine got shot like in my car, my car got oh, wow. shot up. We pretty much barely made it out of that situation. You know, it kind of made me take a long look at how much I was underachieving, you know, mm-hmm. and just not living up to the things, you know, the examples that were set for me and the opportunities that I had. Because you're just, comparatively quite privileged, you know. Right, exactly. You know, I grew up all around the world. You know, we had financially, we were good. I was just home. I didn't really want to tell my parents what I was doing. They still thought I was in school. Mm. But I was like, I need to make some money, mm. you know. Mm. So I was just in the street, like, doing what the city does. And mm. then eventually that'll catch up to you. Yeah. So. And between it, then and when you started sort of pursuing music professionally, what was the transition like for you? It was dope because MoMA, when, when I when I got into when I got into some issues, MoMA had his old laptop and he was like, you know, it kind of circled back like i said to like our whole relationship which was always kind of music based and he was like yo you know you, like you've always had an ear for music we always talk music we always you know i always share my music with you like i know you got the ear for it so take my old laptop and just start opening up my gigs in mm-hmm. manhattan so for like the better part of a year probably eight months to like 10 months i'm just opening up all the moments gigs and then i'm starting to get my own gigs that's the same laptop that i you know recorded my first raps on, on GarageBand. So it was definitely like an interesting couple of years. It went from like just absolutely no direction and really like just purposes. I was just, just kind of flowing, mm. flowing in space, you know? Then I found something that I just became extremely, extremely passionate about, which is just a, a form of expression. I kind of backed mm. into it accidentally, but I think, you know, anyone who does the arts will tell you when you tap into that, it gets really addictive instantly. Mm. It's like, whoa, mm. like, you know, what was that? I've never even used that part of my brain before, that part mm. of like my emotions or anything, like trying to write my thoughts, you know, mm. into something. Like I didn't grow up painting. I didn't grow up writing poetry. I didn't grow up playing an instrument. I didn't grow up doing anything artistic except consuming, really. Mm. And then suddenly you were producing. Suddenly, right. I was producing and I was using a wealth of information I didn't even know I had, but like I said, just coming from my older siblings, my parents, our our lifestyle, you know, growing up mm. across three continents and just consuming world culture mm. and world music. And then when you start to make it, um, you hear it. You hear yeah. all those influences. And you, you, you kind of surrender to the flow of it. So, I mean, because it sounds like it's something that has always been a part of your life that you almost sort of kept to the back of your mind and then suddenly you you surrendered to it and it just sort of carried you. Yeah, almost had to stop being so cynical about yeah. it. Stop being such a New Yorker. Stubborn. In sense. Yeah, it's just like stubborn. And New York is about a dollar. Like, it's the only way to really survive in that city is you got to think about your next dollar and you got to think about your next dollar quick. Like, mm. where is it coming from? You know, how am I stacking this money? It was mm. just like a really like young New Yorker like way of thinking. Nothing Capitalist. On yeah. Yeah, straight up. You know, like when I started making the music, it wasn't even about 
going anywhere with it. I just love doing it so much. I just love the feeling of just mm -hmm. the form of expression. And then I learned that, well, that that's that's actually more gratifying than anything and more fulfilling than anything. Mm -hmm. It just so happened to then turn into a career. So, I mean, looking back, would you say, I know it's so cliche, music saved my life, you know, but do you feel like it did save you in some sense, save you from the city, save you from yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was really going nowhere. Music was the first thing that really disciplined me. You know, I had no discipline mm -hmm. at all until I found music or something. I would wake up mm -hmm. every day and be like, this is what I'm doing today. And like, mm -hmm. I'm working on my craft. I got to get better at writing songs. I got to get better at performing. I got to get access to better producers and better sounds. And it became like a puzzle for me. Like, how do I keep expanding like the parameters of my craft and my artistry? And so I'm, I'll, I want to come back to craft and inspiration and your process, but I just want to go into sort of signing to Dreamville. Eve is, you know, he's your older brother. At what point did he turn around and be like, my little brother actually, he's quite talented. Well, that's the funny part. It's like before it was really like signing or anything like that. It was just like send stuff back and forth. And he had gotten a hold of a record that he really liked. And like he called me about it. It was on like my first or second mixtape. And you know, even the stuff from back then is almost cringeworthy to me just because, you know, it's just so raw and amateur in a lot of senses as much as like my fans appreciate it. For me, knowing how much I've, I've worked on my craft, it's like hard to listen to some of those songs. But he saw something in those early songs. And I remember one day I got a call from Cole and he was like, damn, bro, this really sounds like you. He's like, pretty much you got the hardest part now, which is like, it's uniquely you. It's your sound. It's your perspective. I hear like everywhere you come from in your music. And he's like, the rest is just like working on your craft. And I remember he was like, I can't wait to see where you're going to be in like two to three years. And I think like three years after that is when we did the deal, you know, because mm -hmm. then it was just like, well, come out to Atlanta at the time. They were working in the studio. I went out there and then in the fall, it was like, come to Europe. And I went on the road. I met Ron Gilmore, who was Cole's MD, his musical director and his keyboard player. And I met Cedric Brown, Cedric Brown, who was Cole's homie from that like he grew up with. Ron had been touring with Lauren Hill and left that situation to run with Cole and was like, well, I want to be more than just a keyboard player. I want to be a producer. So mm. that very first tour, it was just the three of us like, well, I kind of produce. And I'm like, well, you know, I kind of rap. So it was like, let's get something shaking. Yeah. And now they're my most frequent collaborators and we've they've done a large percentage of my work and they're pretty much the gatekeepers of my sound. So... We all just found each other on that tour, you know, and just formed a brotherhood like nothing else, mm. you know. Going to these tours and these concerts, they'll change your songwriting tremendously just because you'll start to notice, you know, the parts of songs that went over the crowd, the melodies that went over the crowd, you know, having 16 bars of, of double time rapping. And then, you know, you got to release that tension. It's got to lead into something. It's got to climax. All those things I was learning just watching on the road. You know, mm. we even did a tour with Drake and Cole was his direct support. And I'll never forget that tour because I was pretty much the only dude on these tours that didn't have a job. You know, like, <laughs> I wasn't selling merch. You know, I wasn't a, a band manager. Like I was literally just on a bus working on music with Seth and Ron, working mm. on music with Cole and just expanding my craft. But this tour had Drake, Cole, Waka Flocka, Meek Mill, 2 Chains, and French Montana. And we ran around like 30 cities for a summer. And I'm watching all of these dudes perform. Some of the more prominent guys in the game performing and just 
really studying it, studying the song, studying the performers, you know, the live stage, the production aspects of it. You know, we're rolling around with like 30, mm. 20, 30 trucks of production and like 15 tour buses, like really soaking in all this game. And all of that, once you get back in the studio, is going to have a great effect on the songs you write. Do you feel like your expectations were met? I mean, did you have expectations before you were signed? And then when you were signed, you were like, this is exactly like the dream that I had in mind. Or was it even better? I don't even know what my expectations were because everything just happened in such a snowball fashion. You know, like I said, I didn't grow up wanting to rap. It wasn't like my dream. You know, I didn't have the posters on my wall. Like it was just I found something that I love to do and I just kept doing it. And one thing led to another. It's organic. Yeah, super. So mm -hmm. even now, like, I don't have no expectations. Like, I'm honestly, I'm grateful. I know, you know, I guess from an industry standpoint, a business standpoint, like, I, I learned a lot. And you, you know, you have to not be naive about and, and you have to learn things in order to progress your business. But yeah, as far as like my expectations, like, no, I'm, I'm, I've gotten, you know, mm -hmm. more than I bargained for. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I feel like I come across two types of people, you know, in terms of people who create and, and are artists. It's either someone who it's like they almost can't fight it. They just keep getting dragged into this stream and, and they go with it. And then there's people who are very calculated and strategic and they're like, by the time I'm 25, I want to have done ABC. Do you think it can be destructive to be goal oriented in a very commercial industry? Because, I mean, if you are, say, if you're looking at it in terms of mainstream success, does that not sort of make you vulnerable to the pitfalls of a money-oriented industry? It does, but, you know, I, I do believe in, like, the power of manifesting your goals and your dreams. I think it's important to keep that in mind. I mean, no one is going to be in this game and not be disappointed at some point or another because, like you said, it's, it's very commercial, you know. There's not a single artist that doesn't think they should be bigger, top mm -hmm. to bottom, or more appreciated. That just comes with the ego. You know what I mean? There's not a, a single artist who doesn't want to play a bigger venue, who doesn't want to sell more tickets, who doesn't want to mm -hmm. sell more albums. And that's literally top to bottom, you know? Everybody feels underappreciated because everybody mm -hmm. is a psycho artist. I think it's good to keep those goals, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to know that disappointment and failure is going to be a part of this regardless. Hmm. So you might as well have a clear objective and be able to manifest those goals. You know, the pitfalls are coming regardless. Like if you can't handle those, then it's just not going to work out. How do you feel like your cultural identity feeds into that originality I, like you know growing up in paris being the son of a of a un diplomat moving around being you know son of immigrants how do you feel like that feeds into or fuels the way in which you've sort of carved out like a genre for yourself yeah i think it's everything honestly i think it's the most important part of it even if, if you talk sonically my music is just a melting pot of, of all these places and all these sounds, you know, generated by these places, whether it's African music, European music, New York, like gritty New York hip hop to French house to um, Afro beat to mm. even honestly, some of the rhythms and the cadences I realize come from, you know, speaking other languages and, yeah. the, and the cadences and the rhythms of those languages. So it's it's like all completely based on that. You kind of hit it in the head with that. I mean, even the fact that like collaborating with the Hicks, you know, I know you guys have an album coming out. Um, yeah. FKJ. I mean, it's it, they're not they're not traditional sort of hip hop collaborators. But at the same time, I see you seamlessly go from collaborating with Joey Badass to the Hicks. Right. 
and and that adaptability and versatility is is really is great and i just want to know like is it you just sort of surrendering to to inspiration and just doing what feels good or is it an active effort on your part to be versatile to expand you know and and to not be pigeonholed yeah it's definitely an active effort i think that's one thing i had from jump was my very first mixtape even the intro like i just I rapped on a Jamiroquai instrumental, you know what I mean? Like, I've always wanted to make that a, a part of my brand identity and, like, my music identity was, you know, I really, really am, um, like, a student of world music. Like, I grew up in a household, like, we mentioned that, you know, we were just listening to sounds from everywhere and appreciating artists from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I always saw those connections, and a lot of times I didn't see them being made to my audience i even realized growing up like in high school i would be listening to stuff and my friends would be like what are you listening to and then i would turn them on to all these artists that my older siblings would put me on to you know whether they were like european artists or african artists or whatever the case may be so i kind of looked at my career in the same sense whereas like there's a lot of hip-hop fans that might not know about fkj even though there are places where these worlds merge largely they kind of operate different mm. spaces same way with the hicks mm. you know but i kind of like being that person that's going to introduce you to these new sounds mm. and the fun part for me is to present it in a way where it's not too unfamiliar and too left for mm. my audience you know where it just sits right perfectly it's like oh this way you know, i didn't know i needed this <laughs> right yeah. i didn't know this was the collab i needed but i actually really like this yeah you know yeah. and that's that's the art in it yeah, I mean, I'm risk with FKJ. It's nice because it's nice to hear you sort of sing and get melodic yeah. with it. But also it just feels like it could be a really emo song. And it could also be a really like chilling with the homies, you know, everyone's hanging out. And it's interesting. It feels very fluid. And, and I feel like that's what you're always sort of aspiring towards is this fluidity. Right. I don't want it to ever feel forced or reach. You know, I'll be the first to know and then I'll 86 that before you hear it. You know mm, what I mean? Mm, mm, mm. But even with FKJ, like that dude is so dope and I've been a fan of him forever. I had mm. actually sampled him on Milky Way on a on this song called Fragrance. Mm. And that's where we kind of kicked up a rapport in a sense because I, I DM'd him. Most people I sample, like I'll, I'll try to reach out after they clear the sample and show appreciation, you know, because I don't think enough artists do that. Mm. You're literally taking someone's work and reimagining it and you know so mm. they really did the majority of the work for you and he hit me back and he's like you know what i hate being sampled but i heard the song and i loved it and he's yeah. like, i really don't usually clear samples you know what i mean which is cool like i've had that interaction with a few artists i really appreciate and it kind of builds into a all right well now let's do something completely original Mm-mm. which was risk and you know I have, I'm working on, apart from the Hicks album, I'm working on my album and he's like, he's a big part of that on the production Mm -hmm. end, just because, you know, we found uh, a chemistry that's really helped expand my sound, which is, I Mm -hmm. feel is like, you know, Mm -hmm. paramount to making a new album. There's got to be some new wrinkles to your style in a sense. Mm -hmm. He's amazing. I saw him live, I think back in like 2015 and I was just, he was mixing live, right? And it just, it's the first time I'd seen someone do that. like six guitars and like like four keyboards and. Yeah, he was like, let me hop on the piano. like setting loose, yeah. (laughs) No, he's sick. I mean, he's like that in the studio. Yeah. We did did some sessions when he came to LA. Yeah. And 
I was just blown away. Like, you almost feel inadequate when I'm in the studio with him. Like, bro, mm. you're just too good at this stuff. Mm. But I mean, to to think about it more sort of in terms of current affairs, you know, the Grammys dropped the urban category. And I just want to, like, as someone who appreciates versatility, breadth, you know, expanding the box and, and operating outside of these parameters. I mean, this label, Urban, like, it's, what do you think? It's super degenerative. Well, um, for the history of that label, I think the biggest thing is, like, you had artists that should have been playing on pop radio, hmm. you know, that would play on Urban radio, which really hampers, you know, your exposure and your career trajectory. But there's this whole thing going on with semantics now that's a little weird because people are just like getting rid of words, you know? <laughs> canceling words. They're canceling words. Like they're <laughs> taking people's anger and they're just like, they're trying to appease it by just canceling words. You know, I saw, I, I read an article about uh, a real estate firm that's like canceling the master bedroom, like the term the master. You know what I mean? And it's just like, you're completely missing the point. Even with that, with the whole urban thing, it's like, well, you know, follow the money. Like, that doesn't mean you're going to invest in these artists as much as you are in mm. these pop artists. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just means you're getting rid of a word that people don't like, yeah. you know, but the end goal, I don't see it really moving the needle much. But I mean, it's the ghettoization, right? It's it's the fact that you're taking music that time and time again, rap artists have shown that they can move outside of the genre, that they can, you know, melt into so many different forms of music and it's this sort of it is ghettoization in a sense of like putting everyone in this box right i mean if pop music is popular music what is more popular than hip-hop exactly by far and the the metrics back that up Mm. um but they'll never call it pop music you know they didn't want to call old town road what's bro's name again little Nas X. X, yeah. yeah That was the whole controversy with him. They didn't want to call it a country record because it would have swept, you know, it would have killed every other country record that came out that year. Hmm. And I guess he doesn't fit the bill of what they expect the country artists to look um, You mean black? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm like, I'm over here tiptoeing for no reason. Let's keep it a buck. You yeah. know what I mean? So but the recording industry's always played those games. Yeah. Do you feel like increasingly now there is... Uh, a move away from labels, mainstream labels, you know, that people do feel more comfortable developing their own fan base, distributing their music independently. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have more tools to do so. Mm. There's social media now. You get the right record on TikTok with the right dance, you don't need a label. (laughs) You know, you, uh, you build up a loyal following on any of these social media platforms and you come along with the right song, you know, a lot of these labels now are just looking at metrics. They're looking at people that are getting a lot of engagement and a lot of followers. And then they're worrying about the music later. Like we'll put you in with a a hit maker or a songwriter because you already have a built in audience. Mm -hmm. So it's tough. There's, you know, there's definitely some cons to that approach, Mm -hmm. but again, they're in it to, to monetize the situation. And how do you toe the line between building a fan base but focusing on your artistry because i think that it's it's a, there's a very dangerous line that you can cross where you're creating for the consumer mm-hmm. you know and then but at the same time you do want to create music that appeals to people and that people relate to and and 
that resonates, you know? So where do you feel like you, you need to be careful or where do you feel like for you, there's a cutoff point? I think as long as I'm being honest, as long as I can listen to something and know that it's me, like truthfully and know that I'm expressing things that I really mean and think about and emotions I've gone through, then I know it's going to resonate with my fan base because, you know, human beings kind of on the spectrum, we're all going through the same things, whether it's heartbreak, joy, laughter, depression, ambition, grief, you know, the loss, you're right, grief, like all of these things, we all go through them. So if I can tap into those emotions in a, in a faithful and like honest way, then I know it's going to resonate, you know, with the type of fan base I want to build. It might not necessarily be the fastest road to the top, you know, but damn, I've been doing this for like 10 years now, damn mm. near. Um, mm. And for like seven of those, I've been supporting myself and others and, you know, helping take care of my family and setting up a future for myself. So, you know, you got to know what you want in this game. There's some people that are up all night, you know, pulling their hairs out because they want to hit. They want that smash hit. That's just going to take them to the top, you know, and then there's people that get that smash hit and are around for a summer mm. and are never to be heard from again. You mm. know, there's guys like me and a lot of my peers that get to tour every year because people buy our tickets, people buy our merchandise that might not show up. Mm. Um, when you look at my Instagram followers, right, it's not going to put a dollar amount to how much your fan base is, is invested in your life, you know, mm. but that comes with building a different connection with them. You know, it comes from a place of honesty, a place of vulnerability um, and, and a place of truth. And I find that that's the kind of fan base I've been able to capture. So mm. that's how I stay faithful to them and to myself, really. Mm-mm. And when do you invite people into that process? Because you, you're, I feel like you're very collaborative. You also, obviously, Dreamville is a creative collective, you know, and you guys work together and there's a lot of synergy. And, and at what point does it feel sort of safe for you to open it up and be like, listen to this or, you know, what do you think? Yeah. Or do you want to hop on? It's funny you say that because the guys that I probably learned the most from, which I would say Ron Gilmore, just from a production and, and music theory and just technicality angle. Me and him have spent countless hours in the studio together. And he's one of those guys that grew up in Nashville playing in the church and going to music school. So all the things I wasn't doing as a youth, he's kind of sped me up in the process. Mm -hmm. And I, I consider Cole one of those people as well who's been making music since he was, you know, in his early teens. Mm -hmm. And they both tell me the same thing in that regard is that I have a, a very open process. And that's probably because I came up with a lot of homies helping me develop my artistry. But, you know, that's also what people are mentioning to me as as one of my greatest strengths when it comes to creating. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons really with even at Revenge of the Dreamers, when it's the whole camp and we have 65 artists and producers that are credited on the album, let alone all the other ones who didn't even make it, you know, who didn't make an album credit. But, you know, I noticed they would schedule all of us for rooms in the studio and they would always put me in the A room, which is mm. the the main room. And mm. they would, you know, Cole had this room all the way in the back that was kind of tucked off. Ari had this room upstairs. 
that was real like strobe light ambient R&B room. <laughs> Candles you know I mean? and sage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Jid had this room like tucked off in the back. That was a bit of a smaller room. Yeah. Um, and then there was like a Sound like yours was the, the lobby. Right. You know, it's the A room. It's the biggest room. It's the most space for people to even hang out at. Mm. But I think the homies also knew that I have the most open process really in our in our camp. Because everyone's in there like either trying to find their space or not trying to overstep their boundaries. Um, and I'm in there like, yo, like you got eight bars, like, you know, lay them here. Yeah. Or, um, you know, a song like Costa Rica, like Costa Rica came out of my session as well. And if you look at the credits, it's like 10 of us on there because mm. um, mm. everyone's in the room. So I'm like, well, we're not all going to rap at 16, right? Mm. Because it's just the song would go on forever. Nobody has the attention span for that. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to do eight. You do eight. Mm. Guav Dad, like your eight's going to be the hook. Mm. And then everyone else is. So we took a, you know, conventional 16 bar verse and turned it into two eights and let everybody mm. get off. I mean, the song is is gold. It's on its way to platinum. It's one of the biggest yeah. records yeah. on there, you know. So I like to, I like to quarterback those sessions. Olu from Earth Gang. Kept calling me Bossy Gordy because he would walk <laughs> in the room and I'm sitting there trying to trying to figure out how to put 10 artists on the song. Right. That, that, that so Sudanese. So Sudanese being like, yeah, you know, we everyone. Can't, <laughs> right, 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 right. We can't leave nobody excluded. But I mean, um, it's interesting you mentioned Costa Rica because it, it's chaotic in a great way, right? It's so many, so many artists, but you feel like every time an artist gets on, you're just, I, I jog to it, you know? It's like yeah. the tempo just keeps like, going up and up and up and I, and I love that right. but I, I think what's interesting is on a track like that is everyone's sound is very distinct so even artists are on there that I've never heard before and I'm just like oh I, I get who you are right from from your from your verse and it's I just wanted to to know how you do that how you preserve your sound your distinct identity while collaborating not just with other artists, but even producers who can be very sort of hands-on and very much like a guide for you through that process. It kind of goes back to what we said about your fan base, which is you have to be the first to know when you're reaching, mm. when you're out of pocket, when you're not really being forthcoming or truthful, when you're just stunting for the sake of stunting, you know, mm. and you have to be able to to catch those moments. And then sometimes there's nothing wrong with it. Like if you just want to do that, like go ahead and do that. But mm. you have to know what makes your artistry. You have to know what people subscribe to you for, whether it's wordplay, whether it's vulnerability, even that verse, like my verse on that record isn't necessarily like a party verse. You know, it has like some conscious aspects. I think it starts off with Demons, they follow me deep in the dark. Niggas got problems with being a boss. Like, it's, those are like, you know. Existential issues. Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. Those are real issues in life. So it's like, and then the song turns up. It's a turn up record. But my, my verse still comes across as, like you said, like it's me and like all those other guys. It's them, you know, smoke perp. Mm. okay going on a date with an ak like yeah yeah i can't say that <laughs> you know that you'd have heard that from me and been like 
Like, what, what is he on right now? It's like, but, yeah, I know your parents. You did not go on a date I with mean, the ski naked. mask. My bad. That was ski mask. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. So every everybody is them, and that, and that was the cool thing about that environment too is that yeah. we had such a comfort level build. It is really the Sudanese thing. We mm-hmm. are great hosts in that regard. But everyone that came through, you know, a lot of these rap sessions and a lot of just collaborations in general mm-hmm. in our genre, it's supposed to be like super competitive and mm-hmm. you know, like I gotta I gotta outrap you and XYZ, but everyone kinda bought into we gotta make a song, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not about who raps for the longest. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's about how do we make a cohesive record. Do you ever get writer's block? Um You're like, what's that? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think somebody told me early on, like, inspiration is for amateurs, you know? Like, once you do this and you know you want to do it and you go, you wake up every day and you do it, then it always comes to me. But there are some days where I just don't want to do it. So Mm. I don't think I can call it writer's block if I'm not putting Mm. forth the effort. Mm. Um, But any day where I tell myself I'm writing, like, I get my bars off. And if I do that for, like, three, four days in a row, then, like, I really hit a zone where I get are really good bars off. And then I could treat like those first three days as kind of like damn near throwaways. You know, it's just, mm. it's almost like jogging some kind of mental muscle. Mm, um, mm, mm. But, Momentum. Right, exactly. Mm. But this quarantine for sure has given me days where I just don't want to do music. It seems almost silly, you know, mm. put a lot of things in perspective. Like, you know, what the hell is music? <laughs> what is life? <laughs> what is life? What is what is music? What is touring? Like, what is a career? What is money? Like, in the yeah. face of uh, a pandemic, a, a pandemic. Yeah. So it it's been a little it's been a little tougher for sure. You know, I have my my ups and downs in these moments, as I'm sure any creative probably has. And I mean, you uh, you've never struck me as someone who gets anxiety, but how do you get anxiety and what would you say to someone who wants to pursue this craft, feels really passionate about it, but is like just crippled with self-doubt, imposter syndrome, anxiety? Like, what would your advice be? Just start. Just do it. You're going to feel so good about yourself. You're going to feel so good. Like, even like, don't do it thinking I need to make a career or I need to, mm. you know what I mean? I need to be here. I need to be there. Like, start just working on your craft. Start thinking about your songs, start thinking about your sound, start thinking about the team you want to build around you, whether it's producers, engineers, you know, collaborators, like start there. There's a lot less pressure and anxiety involved in that, you know, than than thinking like, how do I get signed to a major label? Like that shouldn't even be your focus or your Mm -hmm. priority. You could really build this all up from the ground yourself and Mm. with the people that are just passionate, you know, don't even think that you need a big name manager. You know what I mean? Like you need that homie around you. That's the most passionate about your music and you got to empower them and you got to give them Mm. rope and leeway to fail and, and mess up and, and learn and, you know, do all of those things. And it's, it's really the journey. Like I know Mm. people say that all the time. It's like a cliche thing, but when when I look back at all of this, like there's not there's not one moment. Everything that I got wanted when I got it, it was like, eh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The that's the whatever. worst thing. Yeah, that's the worst right? thing. Is that you sort of you have these, you know, milestones in your head or landmarks and then you reach them and you're like, Oh, 
this doesn't really mean much, you know? It right. was actually the process of getting here exactly. that was meaningful. Exactly. Do you, so what do you see in terms of touring? Because obviously with this pandemic that, you know, they're saying that it's not really going to come back in full force until 2022. What does that mean for the average artist? But also a lot of artists complain about going on tour, right? A lot of us complain about so much that we took for granted before this, whether you're an artist or not, you know? Yeah. People are like, you know, I hate crowds. I don't like going to the bar. I hate yeah. going to the club. I'm not. I'm anti-social. So like, sweaty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you. I bet you're not so anti-social anymore. Like you, kind of craving a little bit of human interaction. Yeah. I was never the type to complain about touring. You know, as exhausting as it gets. Like there's nothing like that feeling of getting on stage and sharing these songs that you wrote. You mm. know, in in your crib, and just seeing how they resonate with people. You don't even know until. You watch people and they tell you how you like, what it means to them. Yeah. They react. They show you like tattoos of your lyrics on their skin. You know what I mean? It's like it's, it gets deep. That is my deep. Yeah. No, you, you really see how it resonates with people when you hit the road. And that's that's the payoff, you know? It's not the mm. first week sales numbers or mm. whatever your sales numbers are. It's like it's, for me, it's hitting the road mm. and showing up to these cities and people being like, yo, this is like, this album got me through X, Y, Z, you know what I mean? And that's why I said it's one of those things that doesn't show up necessarily in the metrics, but you can show up to a city, you know, and have 300 people pull up and the next time it's going to be five, 600 people. Mm -hmm. And the next time it's going to be 1200 people. And people forget that you have to, you have to build your touring brand just as much as you have to build you know, your social media presence, like just because you're like you're booming on social doesn't mean that you can just ignore, you know, showing up to a city and, and doing the work, putting on yeah. a good show like, yeah. that is completely independent of everything yeah. else that you're doing. You jump a lot in your shows. Like I remember I was like, this is this this is like proper cardio. I was really impressed. I was like, this is um, but I mean. I, so I was just in Sudan with you in December and you performed for the first time back home, proper concert, you know, your brother Momo's DJing and it felt, you know, it's something that I saw was really important to you. And I also saw sort of how you were um, with the artists, you know, Sudanese rappers, the younger artists coming up. How do you feel about passing the baton and, and what do you do for for younger artists who are just climbing the ladder like in Sudan and obviously beyond it's you know what it's refreshing to see a, a crop of artists that are young and know what they want to do you know like they know um like we said it's not easy coming out of a Sudanese household or which I'm sure is is similar to a lot of like the third world countries where you're just looking for financial security mm. and your parents just want you to pick something stable and steady and the arts aren't really promoted in our communities. That's why I try to do whatever I can for these kids and, and mm. shout out to my brother Ahmed, 80 proof. He's kind of taking, taking lead in that, you know, I just kind of help him um, where I can. Cause he's got like a whole crop, um, mm. you know, shout out to the circle. Mm -hmm. It's a, just a host of, of just talented young Sudanese artists that he's been working with. Um, and it's, it's refreshing to see like the next generation kind of be 
free of of some of the shackles that we had, you know. And I think mm. if there's one thing we could pass along or inspire in these kids, it's like, you know, this is a path. You know, you can go into music or journalism or, you know what I mean? Any anything that's that you don't think is feasible like it it really is feasible it's Mm. it's out here for everyone else so why not us Mm. it's interesting because i think you know in terms of sudan these kids really look up to you as as like the biggest thing to come out of sudan you know and at the same time your your fan base is so diverse and it's like kids from queens you know kids in la kids in paris who like across the board who do you think we should be looking out for? Like, who do you think you look at and you're like, this this kid is is genius? Man, honestly, that is I know, like I know I mentioned the circle, but I I really think that all those kids are really dope. Like Keys, G, Ease, Nadine. They just they're like a fresh crop. They're they mm. they've they do so many things well and they're young and they're hungry, they're just constantly working. Authentic. Um, super authentic like i'm just really excited to see like what these next few years hold for them mm. and what what do the next few years hold for you just trying to put this music out you know it's such a weird weird time again like with this pandemic if you'd asked me this question a year ago i probably would have had a much better answer for you man plans um, god laughs huh right exactly right now i mean i'm trying to get out the states <laughs> That's <really laughs> just travel yeah, that's it. Like it's my 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 plans have have you know come back to more basic things. I want to see the world again, be inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the world to open back up, even like when it comes to shows and like we said, those intimate settings. Like I've had those thoughts. Like well, you know, mm-hmm. what about just the social trauma of this whole situation? Like, are we even gonna be able to be that close to people? Mm-hmm. You know, can we jump in the crowds like like we did in Addis and you know what I mean? Wrap mm. our arms around these kids and sing our songs together. Mm, like, mm, mm. you know, you'd ask me a year ago, I said, you know, I want to, I want to go back to the Grammys on, you know, with another album, and I mm. want to tour a bigger venue. And but none of that is, is resonating as much with me right now. Yeah. And how do you want people to remember you and your work? Just a original, unique. I want them to feel like they got to know me. You know, just really helping to expand the stories that are told in hip hop. I mean, hip hop has always been a storytelling platform and, Mm. you know, the voice of people who might not necessarily have a voice. So as long Mm. as I can keep telling my truths and hopefully people can learn more about myself and my people and and like just where I come from, that would be good enough for me. I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, being organic and and sort of, riding the wave, feeling the sort of the natural momentum. How do you think you'll know when you're done? Mm. Wow. I guess when I don't have that passion for it, you know, I still feel like I did when I wrote my first rap. You know, I still have that feeling, that excitement when I write a song and when I, you know, discover something new, whether it's a cadence or a flow or... Mm anything of that nature. So I guess when that feeling is gone, I'll know it's, it's a wrap. It's time to do something else. It feels like you've never even considered that there might be a point that it could be done, though. 
I have it. <laughs> so it's not done. It's nowhere <laughs> nah, near done. Nah, it's far from done. And so as a final note, what is coming next? Like, what should we look out for? What's the next drop? Something that is an exclusive. Give me the exclusive. You know, I'm a journalist. I live for the exclusives. Yeah. No, honestly, I'm, I'm, I have never been as excited to release some music as I am with uh, some of the things we got planned in the next like 12 to 18 months, starting with this Hicks album. I did a collaboration album with the Hicks and just an incredible duo from London. They've helped to expand my sound um, in the past. So it's it's cool to really focus in and do a whole album together. It's just just, you know. When it, when it comes to artistry, it's just like, it's one of those things I'm like super proud of. Hmm. Um, and it segues perfectly into my next solo album, which is cool. I've had the, the opportunity in this pandemic to really reach out to a lot of people that I've been a fan of forever. Hmm. And everyone, you know, everybody's got time. So I will say it's like the most meticulous crafting of a sound that I've done yet. And I'm like extremely proud of it. How does it feel different to Milky Way and Too High to Riot? It is the expansion of my sound within it. Guys like FKJ handling a lot of the production or somebody like Gala Matias or just, you know, you have those playlists of like 40 songs that you've listened to your whole life. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the this just the yeah. regulars. I have I have yeah. one. It's called the score. It's literally the score of my life. <laughs> right. This is this is me reaching out to like half of those people and making something new with them, you know? So it, the DNA is, is stronger than ever in this one. Wow. Speaking to Bass is always a good time, but just generally a serious boost. What I took from the conversation is that surrendering to your calling is the key to success. It might not be the obvious route at first, but one shouldn't ignore the signposts along the path when they see them. I honestly can't wait to see him perform again after so long and for his new album with the Hicks. Be sure to keep an eye for the show's program notes. We'll have links to all the incredible artists Bass reference, especially those classic Sudanese records and the next generation of Sudanese artists coming through. Thank you for listening to Channel 33 with Yusuf Bavad and our guest today, Bass. Be sure to tune into an all-new episode in two weeks' time. For more on our series, go to soul.digital. You can also follow us on Instagram by going to at SoulDXB and at Yusra and Bafid. You're listening to Soul Radio.